If you heard my sermon this morning, you know I began with that tweet that I read of James, vote for Trump like your life depends on it. I preached that at another church recently, and the very second I said that, vote for Trump like your life depends on, just reading this tweet, a two-year-old over there started screaming, and everybody was like, is that what, I'm not going to tell you how to vote tonight, okay? I am not going to tell you, and I'm not going to tell you in the Q&A, you can ask, I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I'll give you, you know, if you want to talk, we can talk about some principles for voting, that's fine, but I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I don't think that's ordinarily the pastor's job, but the pastor's job is to, pastor's jobs is to help disciple Christians to think about faith and politics, and I I trust Rodney and the brothers have been doing that for, for years in some ways, and hopefully we can do a little bit more of that tonight as we think about these things. I've always been interested in, been interested in politics. When I was in high school, confession, I wanted to be president, thought I would be president, right? Anybody in here ever want to be president? Nobody? You guys are lying. I thought this was a Christian church. One person, did I see one? Okay, there we go. Okay. Okay, well, me and her, we're, we're going to be running for president at some point. Um, yeah, so I did, a, I, did, I did my undergraduate degree in political science, then I got a master's degree in political theory, and then I ended up doing my PhD work in political theology, uh, and uh, worked, did internships and worked in politics a little bit, was a magazine editor for a while, but then became a Christian and felt called to ministry, and ended up going a different direction, but then eventually all that, that political stuff I was involved in kind of converged in my ministry work. And that's why I've been writing on this topic and been able to address this topic and grateful for the chance to speak about this topic with you. Um, if I were to give a title to this talk, it would be How to Make a Political Impact. Okay, how do we as Christians make a political impact? I'm giving it a very practical how-to framework, but let me show you behind the curtain what I'm actually doing. What I'm actually doing is trying to help you, help us rethink this relationship between faith and politics. My concern is that many Christians in America let our Americanism determine how we read the Bible rather than letting the Bible determine what it means for us to be Americans. Let me give you an example. What would you say is... Most American, many American Christians' favorite political verse. Any guesses? One of our favorite verses politically as Americans. Anybody? Yeah, somebody already says, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. I think that's right. I think that's one of the more popular ones. It's like if I, if I, had, a, if I had a whiteboard here, and I think this is how we read it. We, 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 we read it as kind of separating faith and politics. That's what we as good Americans do. We separate our faith and politics. That's what we're taught to do. So if we had a whiteboard, it's like right here you'd have one circle that said Caesar's things, and inside of that circle you have government, voting, elections, parties. And then over here on our whiteboard, I drew another circle that said God's things, and inside of that circle, of course, we would have faith, worship, salvation, stuff like that, all right? So you got, you got two circles, God's things, Caesar's things. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Isn't that what's going on? Keep your, your, your politics and your religion separate. Well, 
Let's think about the context for a second. What's going on in the context? Jesus says, somebody bring, bring me a coin. A coin. He says, okay, whose, whose image, whose inscription is on it? Caesar's, they say. And of course, any Jew there listening would have known that whose image is Caesar in? God's. So yes, on the one hand, he is saying to those first century Jews who are looking for kind of the reestablishing of Israel, this kind of church-state combination, he's saying, no, these things will be separate. But on the other hand, he is not saying that our religion and our politics are necessarily separate. He's not giving us two separate circles, Caesar's things, God's things. Instead, he's giving us one big circle, God's things. And inside of that, a smaller circle, Caesar's things. After all, doesn't Jesus a few chapters later say to Pilate, you would have no authority if it weren't given to you from above? And doesn't he say at the end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me? But when we read the Bible, and that passage is Americans first, I think we tend to think, okay, well, he's saying separate our politics and our religion. And Reading the context, I don't think he's saying that at all. Okay, so all that to say, my sneaky behind-the-curtain goal is help us to rethink faith and politics, but I'm, I'm bringing it out here on stage as a very practical how-to talk, okay? Six, six ways how we can impact or make an impact or engage in the public square. Typically, when people talk about engaging the public a public square, what they talk about is bringing a bigger gun. Right? You're going to battle, bring a bigger gun. Two sides, that war. Colonialists versus the British. North versus the South. Cowboys versus Indians. Republicans versus Democrats. Red versus blue. Right? Bring a get bigger gun. And get into the fight and figure out how to outmaneuver your opponents. And and I, I, read, I wrote this little book that I think Jimmy mentioned, How the Nations Rage. And on the cover, you'll see two boxing gloves, right, with a donkey and, a, and an elephant. And that's, that's what we do. We, we get into battle, and it's really that simple. You've got to win the battle, right? Isn't that how you engage Christians? Isn't that what we do? Just get in the battle? Well, and many Christians come to Washington, D.C. They come to my city, figure out what side they're on, and then sure enough, they go to a battle. Now, then you have a little talk like this, and you talk about being kind, being nice, and not lying, being salt and light. Okay, so we want to do a slightly cleaned up version of the battle, a better version of the battle than our non-Christians, but basically not what we're doing, we're joining the battle. And the problem, of course, with that is, is Christians, some Christians get on this side and some Christians get on this side, and each of them claim to speak, hey, we're, we're representing Jesus over here. This is the Christian way. And now you have Christ versus Christ. Now, what's going on? Why is this so divisive? Why is this such a mess? And of course, the, the church then is stuck in the middle, getting smashed, and our witness is getting smashed. And look around the country today, and what do you see? You see the, you see the integrity of the church getting smashed in many ways. There's different sides. Are, are, we got to be on this side. we got to be on that side. Now, there's certainly right things we must stand up for. There's a place for that, yes. But how do we not get co-opted? How do we maintain our integrity as the church of Jesus Christ, not the church of Republicans, the church of 
Democrats. How do we do that? Okay, again, six ways. How do you make a political impact? Here's number one. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus. Probably didn't expect that, but there it is. <laughs> Repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is a king. We're trying to rethink politics, right? Start with the fact that we serve a king. He possesses all authority in heaven on earth. And what's the, what's the first thing this king did when he came and established his ministry? Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news of Christianity. The gospel is the, the good news that God is good and God created us good in his own image. And yet we decided to be king and so we shoved him off the throne. And in the process, we earned his just penalty and wrath, death. And in the process, we went to war against one another because if I push God off the throne. I'm not putting you on the throne. I'm putting me on the throne, and I'm on the throne, and you're on the throne. So now, here's the nations going to war. But God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, came, lived the life you and I should have lived, died the death that you and I should die, paid the penalty of sin for all who repent of their sins and put their trust in Christ, and rose again from the grave, defeating sin and death. So that all who would follow after him are joined to him and joined to one another. And now there is peace. Peace with God and peace with everyone else united to God. The, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is now broken and, and the two have become one new man. That's part of the gospel too. We're reconciled to God and we're reconciled to one another in Christ, right? And enemies, going to war, we're enemies no longer and we learn to love one another because we've been united in Christ. Okay, all of this is, all of this is the good news of the gospel. So friend, when you become a Christian, your politics dramatically changes. When I became a Christian, my politics dramatically changed. Why? Because I'm a White evangelical, so that means I'm a Republican? No, because I'm saying Jesus is king. And I joined an embassy of his kingdom, the church. And my life gained a new set of priorities this way, that way. And I discovered new forms of peace and reconciliation and discovered new forms of righteousness and justice. The beginning of a Christian politics is this phrase, Jesus is king. That's where our politics, friends, begins. It's got to be clear in our minds. When you become a Christian, your identity dramatically changes. You gain this new citizenship. Suddenly, the most important thing about you is not what your gender is, not who your parents are, not how much money you make or whether you went to college or whether you're single or you're married. The most, your nationality, the most important thing about you is not anything that the U.S. Census Bureau or your college applications would have inquired into. 
Rather, the most important thing about you is that you are united to Christ through the new covenant of his blood. You are a son and daughter or daughter of God. You are a brother or sister to the saints. You are a fellow heir of the king. You are a citizen of the kingdom. So when this happens, friends, when you become a Christian, what you do is you you go before King Jesus and you take all of those different elements of your identity and you give them to King Jesus and you let him either get rid of it or redefine it or whatever he's going to do. Okay, Jesus, here, I'm Jonathan Lehman. I'm, I'm, I'm son of Dave and Barb Lehman. How would you have me be a son? I'm, I'm an American. What, what would you have me do with my Americanness? I, I, I have white skin. That means certain things in, in this country. How, how would you have me use that for the good of others and for your glory? I have a college education. I make this much money. Uh, on and on we could go through the different categories of me, and I give them all to King Jesus, and I say, oh, King, what would you have me do with these things? And some of those things will be like, nope, getting rid of that. And other things he'll refashion and give it back. I, I'm a man. King Jesus, what does it mean to be a man? The, the culture's saying this. Some of the churches I grew up are saying that. King Jesus, what does it mean to be a man? How would you use my manness? What, what is it? What, what does your word say? I need to be discipled. I need to grow in that. Friends, this is identity politics. This is the identity politics we need as believers. Listen to how 4th century Roman Eusebius described one early Christian named Sanctus, when Sanctus stood before his torturers in the year 177 AD. Again, this is a 4th century Roman historian writing about a 2nd century Christian. He says, With such determination did he, did Sanctus, stand up to their onslaughts that he would not tell them his own name, race, and birthplace, or whether he was slave or free, to every question he replied in Latin, I am a Christian. This he proclaimed over and over again instead of name, birthplace, nationality, and everything else, I am a Christian. And not another word did the heathen hear from him. Not beautiful. I, I don't care what the U.S. Census Bureau says. I don't care what... The colleges say, or the media says, I'm a Christian. And that's the most important thing about me. And that defines everything else about me. Not that these other categories aren't real. Not that they're not significant. The Bible has instruction for husbands versus instruction for wives and for, for parents versus children. Those are still real categories for slaves, for free. It has, it has instructions. But all of those are now being defined by the fact that I'm a Christian. And it all comes under the lordship of Christ. The lesson here, well, we need to let go of our American identity, our party identity, just long enough to let the Lord fashion it as he pleases. As I said to you this morning, if you were here, we become better friends to America by loving Christ first. Right? Become better friends to America by letting Christ define us first.
And then our politics, again, if you were here this morning, you said it doesn't begin with withdraw. It doesn't go Peter and the sword. We got to go in and dominate. Rather, our politics is represent. No matter what I'm doing, when I engage in the public square, I'm simply there to represent King Jesus. That's my job. That's your job, Christian. So, step number one for thinking politically, for making a political impact, repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. Number two, put your primary political hopes in the church. Again, a strange thing to say, isn't it? Put your primary political hopes in the church. Now, many Christians in America, I think, continue to put their primary political church hopes in the nation. And so, since the colonial times, John Winthrop and Massachusetts Bay Colony talked about you know, this new colony being a city on a hill. Kennedy picks up that language, Reagan picks up that language, Bush and Obama pick up that language. It's popular political language to talk about America as the city on the hill. Or since Abraham Lincoln's day, we've asked our leaders to provide us a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Do you know where that comes from? Come to my city, go to the Lincoln Memorial, walk up the steps, look to the right, inscribed in marble, you see the second inaugural dress, the very final words of that beautiful, beautiful speech about achieving and cherishing a just and lasting peace with ourselves and with all nations. Beautiful words, right? A just and lasting peace with, with ourselves and then with all nations. Question. Where will we first achieve a just and lasting peace with ourselves and with all nations? Who really is the city on the hill? The church. Isn't that what Jesus said? The church is where we will achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace with ourselves and then with the ones who go to all nations. The church is the city on the hill. Conversion makes us citizens of Christ's kingdom. And then it places us inside of embassies of that kingdom and puts us to work as ambassadors of that kingdom. The local church, Stonegate Church, should be a model political society. Modeling for the nations what the righteousness and justice to which they are called should look like. Church ends, you all file out. Do you go straight to your cars? Do you wait around? Do you talk to one another? Get to know one another? Do you invite people over to your house? Show hospitality? Do you spend time getting to know and loving one another? Do you forbear with one another amidst injustices rendered to you? She said she'd show up at nursery at times. She didn't show up at nursery on time. Do you forgive her? Do you continue to love her and work together in peace with her? And the million other things that happen to us in church life, the local church is to be a model political Society. I love Michael Horton's reflections on the political nature of our message and work. He says, as a minister, 
I am regularly called by God to make a political speech, a deeply partisan political speech. However, it is not to rally the troops in defense of Christendom against the infidels of various sorts. It divides not between Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, but between Christ and Antichrist. Preaching, it would seem, is political. Evangelism, it would seem, is political. How? Well, because both kinds of speech are calling people to bow, kiss the sun. Remember this morning? Kiss the sun lest he be angry. Both kinds of speech are calling people to bow before the king of kings and radically change their lives in obedience to him. Friends, make no mistake the political leaders and parties, the movements and the principalities of this world are messianic. They do want, as I said this morning, they do want our worship, and we cannot give it to them. Think, think of Jonah's sermon in Nineveh. Judgment's coming. So it's a, it's a, in Hebrew, it's five short words saying judgment's coming. And then it says, the city believed and repented. Question, is that an evangelistic speech or a political speech? Yes, the city changed through the preaching of this message. In other words, we, we think about, okay, what is the relationship between faith and politics and what are American Christians going to do? And we think about, I mean, we think about our own American experience. We think about, okay, some get really involved in the moral majority back in the 80s and 90s and others have gotten really involved in various social justice things. And in both cases, they're really trying to make an impact on the nation, and I'm not opposed to trying to make an impact. I'm not. But I am saying, to some extent, in the first instance, we need to shift our focus from trying to redeem the nation to us living as a redeemed nation in the church. From transforming culture to living as a transformed culture. That's where we got to start. Church and state are distinct God-given institutions. We'll get to that in a little bit. And they must remain separate. But what I am saying to you is every church is political all the way down and all the way through. That's why your faith is a political threat, as we were thinking about this morning. And every government is nothing more or less than a, a battleground of gods. No one separates their politics or religion. Not the Christian, not the agnostic, not the secular progressivist. It's in politics. Remember what I said. Our worship determines our politics every time. Let me, let me give you a story of what I mean about the political nature of the church with a, a true story of, of one of my fellow church members. <clears throat> I call him Charles. Charles is a Washington, D.C. speechwriter. He's written speeches for cabinet secretaries and and party chairman, and if, you, if you've watched national conventions, you would, have, you would have heard some of the speeches of my friend Charles. His, his work, to be sure, puts him at the very center of U.S. politics. Charles also spends time with, I'm going to call him Freddie. Freddie, who was homeless, became a Christian and, and joined our church. After several good years as a member of the church, Freddie, we discovered that Freddie was lying to members of the church and stealing to support his drug addiction. We pursued him and pursued him, and he, he refused to fess up, and he refused to repent. And so finally, on one very sad day, we, we removed him as an act of discipline from the church for unrepentant 
lying and stealing and being controlled by his, his addictions. And that's when Charles got involved in Freddie's life. And Charles began reading the Bible with Freddie and sort of discipling him back toward repentance. And uh, I remember one glorious Sunday evening during one of our church members' meetings, uh, <clears throat> Freddie got up before the congregation and he had his, his confession and he, he, he read out his confession, his repentance, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you, I, I lied to you and I stole from you all to, to support my, my, my idolatry and, and I'm sorry church, it was, it was a beautiful, beautiful evening and, and uh, the chairman of the, the meeting got up and said, uh, any questions and all in favor of restoring uh, Freddie to membership in the church say aye, aye, and all opposed nay, it was crickets, right? And we brought him into the church, we embraced, it was beautiful. Okay, this isn't a story about Freddie, this is a story about Charles. Here's, here's, the, here's the GDP-sized question. Which Charles is the political Charles? The speechwriter or the disciple-maker? Or, or, or let, me, let me put it this way. Which Charles is responsible for welfare policy or housing policy or criminal reform or education? Again, both. In fact, Charles the speechwriter would tell you that it's Charles the disciple maker that fashions and gives integrity to and creates the person as the speechwriter for who he is. It is the same man working, the same king ruling, the same principles of justice and righteousness applying the same politics in play. The church is where we should put our first political hopes as we learn to be this model political community. And that brings us to a third step. Step three, we must learn to be before we do. We must learn to be before we do. My church, as you know, is in the Washington, D.C. area, and it's filled with young people like Charles who moved to D.C. wanting to make a difference, wanting to make an impact, wanting to do something, and they work in various spheres of government and praise God for their work and their work matters. But one of their, as one of their elders, I often have to say to them, don't tell me you're interested in politics if you are not pursuing a just and righteous politics with other brothers and sisters in this congregation, black and white, Asian, Hispanic, young, old, educated, not wealthy, not wealthy. If you're not doing it here, I don't believe you when you say you're really interested in it out there. You're missing something crucial. So Paul asked the Jews of his day, Romans chapter 2, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? Remember that question? Well, I have a few questions of my own. You who call for immigration reform, do you practice hospitality with visitors to your church who are ethnically and nationally different than you? You who speak against abortion, do you embrace and encourage and assist the single mothers in this church? Do you encourage adoption? 
You who want to talk about welfare reform, do you, do you give to the needy in this church? Are you generous? You who proclaim all lives matter, do all of your friends look just like you? You who are concerned about the economy and the job market, do you obey your boss with a sincere heart as you would Christ? Uh, you who share your political opinions on social media, do you gladly share the Lord's Supper with the brother or sister in Christ who disagrees with you in your approach? When I say we must be before we do, I mean the local church should strive to live out the justice and righteousness and love in its life together. Then we can come into the nation what justice and righteousness looks like. Absent that, aren't we basically like the, the, the person on the parenting lecture circuit whose kids back home are neglected, abused, abandoned? I don't want to listen to you talking about parenting. Look at your kids. Christians, why should we listen to you? Look at your life together or lack thereof. Well, what do you have to commend about justice and righteousness? Step three, we must learn to be before we do. Step four, let the state do its job and let the church do its job and those are separate Jobs. I've been emphasizing how our politics is religious and our religion is political. I've been emphasizing the unity. Now let me, let me go to the other side, okay? The church and state in Scripture are separate and should be separate. I want to say two basic things on this for time's sake. And I'm, I'm not going to get into as much as you might like, but two basic things that we need to keep in mind. Okay, here's the first thing I want to say about the separation of church and state. Number one, we, we, we have to know how to say two things at once, okay? Here's the challenge. On the one hand, I think we need to teach and affirm that the Bible teaches the separation of church and state, and I believe that it does. Render to Caesar what is Caesar and God what is... I think that's one place, for instance, and there's other passages we could look at. I think the Bible teaches the separation of church and state. We need to hold on to that. And at the same time, we also need to say... A beginning of Christian politics begins with Jesus as king. And somehow we have to hold both of those statements at once. The Bible teaches separated, separation of church and state, and our politics begins with Jesus as king. And the temptation for Christians throughout 2,000 years of church history is to get rid of one or the other of those two statements. So what is Christendom? Well, Christendom for 1,000 years is separation of church and state, we're just going to affirm that Jesus is king, right? And what is so much classical liberalism of today? And so the way so many Christians today think, well, it's, yeah, Jesus is king, but separation of church and state. Put that bumper sticker down. But somehow our task is to figure out how, to, how do we do both of these things at once, okay? That's the first thing I want to say about the separation of church and state. Here's, this, here's the second thing. Most Certainly non-Christians, but also Christians, I would say, misunderstand what the separation of church and the Bible is. We tend to think of the separation of church and state as the separation of morality, Christian morality, or any morality from the state. That's what we tend to assume it is. For instance, I was teaching a group of 
uh, college interns who had come to Washington, D.C. for various internships around town. And I was teaching them on some of these things. And one student raised his hand and said, Dr. Lehman, are, are you saying... Are you saying that we should actually impose our Christian morality on people? And I said, name for me one law that doesn't impose somebody's morality. Just one. And the class thought, kind of scratched their heads and eventually chuckled. Yeah, that's right. That, that's what law does. Law imposes morality. It makes judgments. Every law. Even a law that says you should drive on the right side of the road, unlike those wacky British driving on the left side of the road, it presumes that human life is worth preserving and order is worth establishing. There is a moral basis for such a law. And so it is with all law. And that's why you teach your children to follow certain rules, because you're teaching, you're instructing, this is good and this is not good. This is valuable, this is not valuable. All law imposes morality necessarily. You can't get away from it. The separation of church and state is not the same thing as the separation of religion and politics or morality and politics. And saying it is works great for the non-Christian. When the non-Christian affirms his belief in the separation of church and state, he means the separation of your and my church from the state. You see, not his own. He effectively says, you can't impose on me anything that you've learned when he gets up and he opens the Bible and preaches to you. You got that from your book. You can't impose that on me because he doesn't think he has a church. He doesn't think he has a worship or a religion. He is happy to impose the wholeness, however, of his idolatry on me. You never hear of the separation of idolatry in state. Lucky for him. Too bad for us. That's not what the separation of church and state in the Bible are. Biblically understood, the separation of church and state is not about who gets to decide which morals will bind a nation. Government exists, says Paul in Romans 13, to reward the good and punish the bad. That's a moral judgment. And that's what government is there for, says Paul. What is the separation of church and state in the Bible? It's the fact that God has given the state one kind of authority, the power of the sword, and given the church another kind of authority, the power of the keys. You see? Now, we can't expect our non-Christian friends to understand that, the power of the sword versus the keys, what are you even talking about, authority of the church. But here's the thing I'd want to say to you, Christian. I don't expect... The non-Christian be able to explain what the power of the keys are and what the authority of the church is, but can you? How many Christians do you think can explain and define what the authority of the church is? Well, until we do, until we understand that, we won't actually understand what the separation of church and state in the Bible are. Again, we can, we can talk more about this in the Q&A if, if you have questions about this. Obviously, this is going to have implications for what kind of laws we might pass, from everything from, from pornography to state lotteries to, to laws on marriage. It's not a good enough just to, again, throw out the bumper sticker, separation of church and state. No, we need to be a little bit more careful in how we're thinking than that, okay? So that's, that's number four. God has given separate jobs to church and state, and we need to know what they are. Step number five. When you enter the public square, vote for justice. When you enter the public square, 
vote for justice and justice as defined by, well, justice, well, justice as defined by the Noahic covenant. I think probably the most common question, you know, you, you hear when Christians get to politics, well, who, who should we vote for? Well, to answer that, let's back up. Now, let's ask the question, what has what God established governments for in the Bible? Well, when we think as Americans first, we tend to answer that question by pointing to the three principles of the American experiments, rights, equality, freedom. Governments exist to secure our rights, secure our freedom, establish equality. That's what we think of government as for. The, the, the trouble is, I think you know this, people mean very different things by those words. How about the right to an abortion? How about marriage equality? How about the freedom to define my own gender? And to require you to recognize it. Now, I happen to believe that rights, freedom, and equality are biblical principles, but they're derivative, secondary biblical principles. The primary principle in Scripture for what government is called to do is justice. We're interested in a just set of rights, a just equality, a just freedom. After all, we all recognize there might be times where for the sake of justice, you'll take away somebody's freedom. But would you ever take away justice for the sake of freedom? Well, no, you wouldn't do that. Justice is why God has established governments. 2 Samuel 8.15, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and righteousness to all his people. 1 Kings 3.28, Israel stood in awe of the king because they perceived the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Queen of Sheba shows up to Solomon's throne room. Queen of Sheba, this, this foreign queen, says to Solomon, because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. 1 Kings 10.9. And Proverbs sums this up for us, Proverbs 29, verse 4, by justice, a king builds up the land, okay? A government's primary job, Christian, according to the Bible, is to establish and secure justice. Okay, what's justice? How do we define justice? Well, it depends on the domain you're in. It might mean one thing in this domain, another thing in that domain. Well, let's think about government. What, what, what kind of justice is the government called to establish? Well, I think we get the answer in the very passage where God gives authority of the sword to governments. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For man was made in God's own image. In other words, what's the standard of justice? Well, the standard of justice is whatever protects and upholds human dignity as defined by the fact that we are all God imagers. God intends all governments in all nations, whether they acknowledge him or not, to establish this basic form of justice for its citizens. And to the extent these governments who do or do not acknowledge him don't, they will be held accountable on Judgment Day for whether or not they upheld 
and protected human dignity as defined by the fact we are all God imagers. So I think Carl Henry was right when he said the church is to declare the criteria by which the nations will ultimately be judged. What is the criteria we are declaring? Oh, nations of the earth by which you will be judged. Well, one of the clearest ones is that you are to protect your citizens as God imagers. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man will his blood be shed for man was made in God's own image. Noahic justice is a protectionist, preservative form of justice. The dominion mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Think you get it back in Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply, subdue and rule the earth. Adam and Eve go out of the garden, the flood, Noah's back. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Repeat of what was said in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. And says it again in verse 7. Be fruitful and multiply. But because the Cains were killing the Abels, we're post-fall now. He adds a little provision that wasn't said back in Genesis 1. Let me add this little provision. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall be his blood be shed. I, I want to help preserve the natural order. And in fact, I'm going to do my own bit. I'm going to put my bow of war down, the rainbow. I won't destroy the earth. I'm going to preserve the earth. And you're not to kill each other. And you're to establish governments that protect God imaging this. In other words, everything a government does, every law it makes, every courtroom ruling it declares, every executive code agency it enforces, it should do for the purposes of affirming and protecting its citizens as God imagers. Its work of upholding justice must always be measured by the standard of the imago dei, the image of God. In other words, anything that harms hurts, oppresses, exploits, hinders, tramples on, degrades, threatens human beings as God imagers should be uh, opposed by a government, becomes a target of government opposition. And I would argue by implication, anything that aids, abets, promotes, encourages a set of conditions that contribute to the ability of human beings to pursue their vocation of being fruitful and multiply, being God imagers, arguably, there's going to be a lot of gray here, and Christians can disagree, arguably becomes a candidate for possible government encouragement. Or as Paul and Peter both put it, reward the good, punish the bad. Or I think Martin Luther King Jr. captured the basic idea when he said, any law that uplifts human personality is just, any law that degrades human personality is unjust. Now there's one more thing we have to say here. Why is the government given this authority? Well, first, to establish this platform of of peace and order so that people can be fruitful and multiply and get on with their vocation of imaging God, number one. But second, the government is called to do this so that people are free to worship God. Genesis 9 and this justice mechanism, this coercive mechanism given to Noah and all of his children, including us, comes before Genesis 12... And the call to Abraham in the beginning of the storyline of redemption for a reason. 
In fact, Paul helps us see that reason a couple places in the New Testament. Acts 17, 26. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. I'm setting up these nations and their structures and their government that people may find this, this, this platform of safety and protection that people may find their way to me. Government is serving this. People finding their way to me. Or 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions that we may live a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, I want you to notice the connection here between praying for the king and a peaceful life and salvation. We're, we're to pray for the king or whoever is in charge so that we can live a peaceful and quiet, orderly, safe, protected life. Why? Because God wants all people to be saved. Governments exist ultimately for the purposes of salvation. Their immediate purpose is to provide safety and order and peace and establish justice, but their ultimate purpose is to provide a platform for the church to do its work and carrying on with the great commissions. Why should Christians care about good government? Well, we care about good government first for the purposes of loving our neighbor and seeing justice done to them, that their God-imaging life is protected. But, but, but even more, finally, we as Christians care about good government because we care about save, salvation. And we want people to find their way to a knowledge of God. And I think all of this helps us answer the question, who do I vote for? Right? Who should I vote for? Vote for the candidate, the party, the legislation, the ballot measures with a limited but clear view of what God has authorized the government to do and what he has ordered them to do. To execute justice for the sake of preserving peace and order and human dignity to build platforms of these things and to make sure, therefore, people are free and not hindered of knowing God and being redeemed. We do not want a government that thinks it can offer redemption. It cannot. That's the church's job. Rather, we want a government that views its work as a prerequisite to redemption for all of its citizens. So who do you vote for? Well, vote for the one that would build the streets so you can drive the church. Vote for the one that would protect the womb so you can live and hear the gospel. Vote for the one that insists on fair lending and housing practices so you can own a home and offer hospitality to non-Christians. The one that works for education so that kids can learn to read their Bibles. You, you see, special grace and the work of the church depends upon a common grace platform. I got to learn to read before I can read the Bible. 
right? A common grace comes first as a prerequisite to what the church is called to do. Vote for the one that protects marriage and family so that husbands can model Christ's love for the church. Vote for the one that polices the streets so you are free to assemble as churches. And that doesn't engage in police brutality so that people are afraid of the very ones that are called to protect them. And again, they can participate in the life and the work of the church. Now, you might disagree with any of the specific examples I just used. That's, that's, that's fine. I hope you understand the grid that I'm wanting you to see and adopt. Governments render judgment, establish justice in order to gain peace, order, and prosperity so that the church can do what God has called the church to do. Okay, that's principle five. Principle six, enter the public square as ambassadors and principled pragmatists. Enter the public square as ambassadors and principled pragmatists. I'm basically going to skip this point. Uh, what this is is, okay, well, Jonathan, you mean talking about what the church should be what the state should do, but, you know, they don't, they don't agree with the Bible. How do, I, how do I have conversations with them? Well, you're, you're stepping into the public square with, so we've been kind of having our hallway conversation. Now we're stepping into the public square and we're talking to non-Christians. How, how do I do that? Well, you do that as an ambassador. I'm here to represent Jesus, but I'm also doing that as a principled pragmatist. I have certain principles that I'm seeking to, to implement and I'm pursuing, but I'm going to do it somewhat pragmatically. I'm going to use wisdom and prudence to figure out, okay, what, what kind of argument is going to persuade you? I'm going to use those arguments that are most capable of persuading you. Where's, where's the common ground I can, I can establish with my non-Christian friends? Should I, should I appeal to conscience? That's a common ground argument, right? Well, listen, you don't believe in God and religion, fine, but you, you, you have a conscience, right? You, you don't want me to impose on your conscience. You don't want to impose on my conscience. So should we agree to religious leader for freedom of conscience sake? That's a common ground argument. Maybe I'm going to appeal to natural law. Look, nature establishes certain laws that we can all recognize. Is that going to win the argument? Uh, should I appeal to statistics and sociology? Well, have you ever noticed that parents, you know, children coming from two-parent homes are actually, you know, much doing much better in their SAT courses uh, uh, tests and lower criminality? So I'm going to appeal to a sociologist's knowledge, right? So the, the point is. I think there's freedom and flexibility for us as Christians when we step into the public square to use this kind of argument, that kind of argument, use good judgment, use wisdom, be a pragmatist from the standpoint of what is it going to take to present them or, or, or convince people who don't, who don't share our, our presuppositions, don't share our convictions over Scripture of, of what the good and right and just thing is. We never compromise what we think is good, right, or just, but we use different kinds of arguments there. That's all I really wanted to say on that point. Let, let, let's conclude. How can Christians like you and I, friends, make an impact, make an impact? Well, we repent of our sins, we put our trust in Christ, and we join a church. So if you claim to care about politics, and you're not an active member of your local church, I'm tempted to think you don't understand politics at all. You're, you're like someone who claims to love cars because you get on your hands and knees and push little matchbox cars around saying, vroom, when there's a real car right next to you, that's the church. 
where you really got to engage with flesh and blood and people, right? And that's why my church cares about welfare policy. So when member Jane found herself homeless, we tried to place her in safe housing, but due to her mental difficulties, she refused that and went down and slept in a park. And, and member Luther, worried about her, went down and slept on a nearby park bench. He was worried about her welfare. That's why my church cares about tax policy. So Carlos, who spends his working days explaining to U.S. Congress the tax implications of new and proposed legislation, has spent many, many an evening helping a family in crisis with their taxes and working with their creditors and collection agencies because of uncontrolled debt. My church also thinks it's important to address America's race problem, or at least our own race problem. I remember one Sunday morning when it was announced from up front that I would be giving the evening talk that Sunday on race. Come back tonight, Jonathan will be talking about race. Patty came up to me afterwards and said, I'm so glad you're going to be speaking on race tonight. I, I really struggle with this issue. Can I, can I be honest with you? I don't like black people. I don't like their culture. It's just, it makes me uncomfortable. And I know that's wrong, but I'm just telling you what's in here. I said, Patty, do you, do you know, uh, I'm going to call him, Joe and his wife. Joe's an African-American. Yes. I'll tell you what. I want you to call Joe and his wife, invite yourself over for dinner, and then at dinner, I want you to tell them exactly what you just told me. And she said, are you serious? And I said, I think so, Yeah. To my amazement, she did. Not to my amazement. It went exactly as I expected and hoped it would go. Joe and his wife loved her, forgave her. And she repented a little bit of her racism on that day. And they modeled together the, the justice and righteousness to which Jesus calls the church to be a model for the nations. Now, just to be clear, I wouldn't have done that with anybody. I, I trusted Joe's maturity to be able to handle that. Don't try this at home with anybody, <laughs> kids. Real politics, friends, begins not with what you're typing out on your computer on Facebook. Real politics begins with your everyday decisions about loving or not loving the people around you, especially in your church, but also your neighbors. It begins not with public advocacy, but with personal affections. Not all by your lonesome, but with a people. It's inside the local church where a Christian politics becomes complicated, authentic, credible, possessing integrity, real, hard, honest, substantive, worth something, God-glorifying. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for 
Not giving attention to ourselves, not giving attention to our church and how we love or fail to love our fellow church members, treat them with justice and righteousness. So, so we start with the, asking for your forgiveness. And we, we know that those of us who confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, for all the ways we have wrongly raged against our neighbor and against our fellow Christians, we ask for your forgiveness. For the, all the ways we fail to be just and righteous, we ask for your forgiveness, and, and we, we, we bask in the mercy and grace that we know you give. And now, Lord, we call you to, to change us by your spirit, by your word, that we would look more like Jesus, following after him, loving one another. You tell us, Lord Jesus, that they'll know we're your followers by our love for one another. Help us to love one another. And then help us to commend this love, a justice-seeking, truth-seeking righteousness-seeking love to our non-Christian neighbors as salt and light. We pray all of these things in the Son's name. Amen. It is 8 o'clock. Um, we're going to be done in, uh, no later than 8.30, so we're going to have about 20 or maybe 25 minutes to do this part of the night uh, before we close and wrap up. And uh, let me just again say why it is that we've done a thing like this uh, where we're thinking about faith and politics. We want to help equip you in how you think about how you're thinking about politics. And so that's the goal of a night like that, is to do discipleship and equipping around this particular area of your life. So we're hoping it's proving helpful to that end. And secondly, I think it's worth saying this uh, before we get going. Uh, there's gonna be more questions that came through than we're gonna have time in 20 minutes to answer. So there's that. Uh, so you're gonna have to be patient with us in that way. We're not gonna get to, to every question. So uh, let me just start with this one. It's the, the kind of the gist or the title of your little red book that I would encourage everyone to pick up. I think we're giving those away, so make sure your family has one. I definitely want you to read through it. But essentially the title is How to Disagree with People That Think Differently Politically Than You in Your Church. And so maybe you could just do a quick kind of crash course to get us started. And what would you wanna say uh, to a church like ours who is going to have uh, some people in our church family, we're just gonna have a difference in how we see some of these sorts of things. So uh, counsel us, help us, uh, give us some insight in what you might wanna say there. Yeah, uh, four, maybe five things, four things. Number, number one, expect political tension in a healthy church. We're united in the gospel, not necessarily our partisan politics which means if we're coming together and being united in the gospel, there's going to be some political disagreement. The gospel doesn't solve all of our political disagreements. Think of Simon the Zealot, I hate Rome, and Matthew the tax collector, uh, okay, I'll collect taxes on behalf of Rome, both following Jesus. I don't assume that following Jesus suddenly meant their views on Rome vanished. I assume they're kind of trailing behind Jesus and there's maybe a little bit of arguments going on between the two of them and what to do with Rome, right? In other words, friends, come to church expecting, if it's a healthy church, for there to be some political tension. And if there's not, if there's pure political uniformity, could it be that something besides the gospel is creating that uniformity, Right? Something to think about. That's the first thing. Expect tension. Number two, kind of another way of saying the same thing. What is a church? It's not a gathering of a party. It's not the gathering of a nation. It's not the gathering of, of any number of sociological or political things that's such. It's, it's the gathering of Christ 
followers, right? And that, that's what we come to affirm. And so the most important thing, so for the members of the same church, you and I might disagree on any number of political issues, but the most important things is that we're one in the gospel, and we have to live inside of that. A third thing I would say in helping to preserve the unity is this and the next point are a little wonky, but stick with me. We need to recognize the distinction between, let me call them whole church issues, and Christian freedom slash disputable matters issues. Whole church issues are those things that we unite around. Christian freedom slash disputable matters issues are those things that we might have moral convictions about. This isn't necessarily just Wheaties versus Cheerios. We might have certain biblical principles in mind over here. Nonetheless, we have agreed that we're not coming together as a church around these things. We're coming together as a church around these, these whole church things. So a couple of examples. The millennium. Now, you might have biblical convictions on the millennium, whether it's a pre-mill or all-mill or post-mill. But at least in my church, I don't know about yours, we don't put a view on the millennium in our statement of faith. We understand that Christians can come around in the gospel and have disagreements on the millennium, right? We're putting that in the Christian freedom slash disputable matters bucket versus the whole church bucket. Uh, homeschooling. Well, I think you can be a Christian and decide to homeschool or not. That's going to be over here in the Christian freedom bucket. Most political issues, not all, most are over here in the Christian freedom slash disputable matters bucket as opposed to the whole church. Why is this crucial for preserving love when we disagree politically? It allows us to turn down the volume, lower the temperature in a lot of those places where we might be tempted to fight, right? So here's a question to ask yourself. Is this a whole church or is this a Christian freedom issue? Do you expect Rodney, when he comes up and opens the Bible and preaches, do you expect him to bind the conscience of every person in this congregation on this matter? That's a whole church issue. Do you expect your elders, when you're doing membership interviews or however they're done here, do you expect to screen, you ask people, what is the gospel? Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you expect them to ask, do you vote this way on this issue? And will you remove from membership people who disagree on this issue? Can't be a member of the Ku Klux Klan, can't be a member of the Nazi party. That's a whole church issue. You can't advocate for abortion. I would call that a whole church issue, right? So is the issue that you're looking at in your mind of such clarity, such important, you're saying, again, he should preach it and we should treat this as a condition of membership. Well, then it's a whole church issue. Or is it a Christian freedom disputable matter issue? And if it's that, lower the volume, calm down. You can persuade, you can work to disciple, but you should also be willing to change the subject. Okay? And we're still coming to the Lord's table with one another and we're going to be okay. Fourth thing. Okay, again, how do we know which is whole church, which is Christian freedom? Is it, uh, here's another Here's another kind of way of dividing it. Does it depend upon a straight line ju judgment or a jagged line judgment? A straight line judgment means there's a straight line from what the Bible says psh, straight to a policy application. 
The Bible says murder is wrong. The Bible says the Lord has known us from our mother's womb, abortion is wrong. Straight line, right? I, I expect him to be able to stand up and preach that. It's a straight line. That's a whole church issue. Uh, so in my church, if, if, you know, if, if you're sponsoring and pursuing abortion, we will remove you from membership. Christians do not kill their babies. It's just straight. Okay, what about, let's suppose you're convicted. You know, you, you've heard what I've said about human dignity and, you know, you've kind of become convinced of, say, universal health care. You have certain biblical principles informing that, biblical, you know, human dignity, okay, fine. But, but in order to come to that policy application, universal health care, you actually have to ask, answer a number of questions. Well, what, what, what are the standards of care? What services will be provided? Will other injustices be caused? How, how do we fund this? What if the, the quality of care dramatically drops, you know, kind of zigzag, zigzag, down to your universal health care application. Well, I can understand why you might have biblically informed principles you're bringing to bear, but Christians, good Christians might disagree with you. It's a jagged line judgment, and so we're going to leave it in the Christian freedom, disputable matters, bucket. And again, the, 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 the way we're trying to distinguish these two is, is helping to preserve the unity of the saints when we disagree with one another, right? And very often the tactics, political tactics are over here in jagged line Christian freedom land. There's a lot more one could say. Those are four things that yeah, yeah. Super, I think are crucial. Yeah. Super helpful. And uh, you, you know, you highlighted this a little bit in your talk, but even just the tension that the church is constantly trying to manage, even for thousands of years now, between Jesus as king and separation of church and state. And I'm just curious, as you've looked at that, what are some of the pitfalls that you've seen the church err in when it comes to its relationship with politics historically? Yeah, number one is to assume that my view on this, that, or the other is Jesus' view. So I was driving along once with a political science professor who had fairly strong convictions about most things. And I said, so do you actually think your opinion on health care and tax policy is Jesus' opinion? He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. You must be an apostle. <laughs> the Holy Spirit told you a bunch of stuff he hasn't told us. He's inspired, yeah. Inspired. <laughs> I think that's one error, yeah. to make our political perspective on not all issues, but over here in the jagged line area, to make our position the standard of Christian faithfulness. Mm -hmm. And if you disagree with me, you disagree with Jesus, you're a bad Christian, maybe a non-Christian. We may not say that, but we're kind of, we're doing that in our heads. I think, I think that's one common error uh, I think forgetting our gospel identity, a lot of the things I've been talking about today, um, I think being uninformed and not knowing our history. And I think this especially, I think a lot of the race challenges that we feel in America right now in, 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 in many instances are just because I think whites are often just ignorant of history. And uh, I'm not trying to commend a particular perspective here. I'm just saying get to know history. Right? Just learn. Uh, learn what a lot of our minority brothers and sisters have been through and, 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 and the history of the conversations. Like, have you ever read on the history of redlining? I, you know, I recently read a book on uh, 
is called the American Ghetto or something like that, and it talked about housing policy in the last 150 years and how ghettos were formed due to various kinds of policies, sometimes clearly unjust, sometimes on the surface just, but having certain clear applications, and then politicians come along and make decisions in order to get, get, win votes and help their own base, but not have certain bad effects, and you see the formation of the ghetto, and it's just like, goodness sakes, I had no idea that was going on, and that gives me certain levels of empathy for, for minority brothers and sisters when they talk about certain sort, sorts of things. I, I just wouldn't have thought of until I, I, I learned a little bit. Yeah. So brothers and sisters, just just... Get to know history. And that, that's not just the race conversation, obviously. That's a lot of yeah. different issues. Yeah, you bet. Uh, here was one of the questions that came in. Um, and this is actually one of the, the real concerns I have for uh, just our church family and uh, uh, people who are in and around our church family. So the question goes like this. What's the best way to help a Christian nationalist who is a believer realize they are putting their political allegiance to whatever kind of party, platform, uh, whatever that is, they're putting that allegiance before King Jesus. What's the best way to help there? Maybe what warnings would you want to give us uh, for that? Number one, pray. Probably number two, pray. Pray. <laughs> Three, pray. Uh, number four, take them to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Ask the question, does that include Jesus? Or does that include America? Is it, that's an uncomfortable question yeah. for a lot of us. Do you think America is raging against the Lord and is anointed? Or is it somehow exempt from the indictment of that psalm? Right? It's a good question to ask. Um, again, I think a knowledge of American history here is really helpful. And understanding the nature of what's called American exceptionalism and how we have long viewed, going back to the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the rest of the colonies and establishing our own nation, the, the sense uh, that, that, that America is kind of has a special Israel-like place um, um, in God's plan, such that American history and salvation history begin to merge and recognizing that trend and, and some good things that have come from that, but also many bad things that have come from that. I, depending on the, the, the person I'm having a conversation with, I, I might want to investigate some of that. But I, I think principally, Scripture, aliens and strangers, First Peter 1, I, I guess I would look at that passage. Uh, yeah. Bible and prayer. Yeah, I hear you. What would you do? What would you say? <laughs> <laughs> I would pray. <laughs> and I would pray. Already said that. <laughs> and then I would pray some more. Um, you know, I, I, this is one of the reasons I actually think it's so important to come to a healthy church and to root your life in a healthy church. Because um, when you just, if, if you're living life in this world, you're constantly being formed by this world. Yep. And we constantly then need to be yep. reformed. Well said. By, he said that at lunch. He, he did say that at lunch. See, you should have asked him. You're quoting him. Yeah. This is a quote from Ryan Kearns, guys. Yeah. But, but it's so Better true. Credits yeah, that's right. It's so true that, that every day when you live, we are being, I mean, this is, we say this all the time around here, that a culture has this function in all of our life to make a disciple of us. 
That's what your culture, just the air that you're breathing, you're watching TV, you're interacting with the world that is, and it's, it's shaping you into a particular type of a disciple. Yeah. And we all need to have a reshaping influence, a reforming influence um, as much as possible. So I just think... Don't be conformed, but be yeah. transformed yeah. by... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Romans 12. I'll just let you answer. Right? Well, no. <laughs> it was. It was a great conversation. But I think, Jonathan, what I'm curious about is how did we arrive here, though? Like how even in this room right now? Yeah. We're in this room right now. I can even feel it myself a little bit. Okay, we're talking about some things that, you know, it feels like you're on eggshells a little bit. And how did we reach a place where politics just feels so pervasive and predominant and almost like it's replaced religion? Uh, and I, I, I don't know if that's a broader... Take, take almost out. Yeah, absolutely. So where I feel like, even for a Christian, a lot of times the starting grid is first to think politically, then theologically. That's why I appreciated so much your work, even in your talk. But how did we arrive here? And, and how do we... I mean, I think you gave us some really good steps we could take to go, go elsewhere. But how did we get here? Uh, let, let me say two things. There's a lot that could be said historically, but let me just say two things theologically. In the Bible, government does have a beastly trajectory. In the same way, fallen Adam and Eve have a trajectory towards Cain and Abel. And in a certain sense, apart from God's common grace, things get worse. Government does as well. You may remember from this morning, Pharaoh at the time of Uh, Joseph, Pharaoh at the time of Moses. And when you get the beast in Revelation, what the beast, as I understand it, what the beast is, the beast is government and a government which will devour God's people. And throughout scripture, you have two kinds of governments, those that protect and those that devour God's people. I've given you a couple of examples. So Darius at one point does protect, (laughs) right? Nebuchadnezzar at one point devours, but another point when he comes to repentance protects. Right? So you get both kinds, but there is a trajectory, a beastly trajectory towards governments that would devour God's people. So how did we get here where you said it almost begins to replace religion? Well, no, that, that's been its trajectory all along. Governments will, apart from God's intervening grace, whether common or special, will eventually move in that Direction because we want to rule, we want to cast off God's rule, and we want to rule ourselves, right? So, I think that, that would be the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is, um, let me let me let me pick on churches a little bit, right? Let's let, as Peter says, judgment begin with the household of God. To what extent have churches in the last 30, 40, 50 years forsaken our responsibility to make disciples? And to what extent have we made culture warring? and politicking ultimate rather than gospel proclamation ultimate? And to what extent have we become just consumers who show up on Sunday but then left the rest of the week not very different? We've not been reformed. We're not living lives together that are reformed. We've not presented an attractive witness. And so, of course, the nation goes off to other things. And so I'm not, I don't, getting to history some, I'm not a person who says history's all up or all down. I'm not going to come and just give you a, what's called a declension narrative. Things are just declining. I think history's more complicated. If, if again, if you're, say, African-American, are things better today or worse than in 1960? Well, in many ways, things are better, right? 
child abuse laws. They're better today than, say, years ago. So some things are getting better, but also I think some things are getting worse. I think you, I think you have both in history. And um, I think in certain regards, America has uh, abandoned many Christian uh, uh, moral bases. I don't know that we were ever a Christian nation as such, but I think we had a Christian-ish worldview and, and morality. We've many, in many respects abandoned that, and churches are in part to blame by getting wrapped up with other stuff. And so, yeah, what happens when God flees? Well, other gods come in, and politics is a religion. We got a, a number of questions on voting, so, Sweet. and uh, I know, yeah, so now, now we get to the good stuff. Um, and, and, you know, I think a lot of folks are feeling this, particularly in 2020, that their, their options are less than what they would want uh, to have presented for them. And so they feel, are they left in a spot, uh, we were asked of, do I choose between the lesser of two evils? Um, is that really the, the posture a Christian should have if they really feel like each candidate or each of their, especially since we're in a two-party system predominantly, yep. but if you're walking into that, uh, how, how would you advise uh, that person that's feeling like, do I choose from the lesser of two evils? Do I abstain? What should I do out of Christian conviction if say, I'm here to represent Jesus? Yeah, right. I would say if you can, you should. If you can't, your conscience won't allow you to go either direction, then don't. But if you can... I think you should. I'm driving a tro trolley because Michael Sandel's example from a book called Justice. I'm driving a trolley car. I look down the tracks. I see I'm about to run over five people. I don't have time to brake, but there's a sidetrack. I can pull the lever, go down the sidetrack. Oh, there's two people. Well, I run over five. I run over two. Those are my only choices. I think one of those is probably better than the other, right? Now, you might feel like, well, I, no, I just can't do that. And in fact, okay, it's five murderers, and it's, it's, it's my wife and kid. So yeah, five, two, but consider who they are. Uh, yeah. I, I just, you know what I mean? So it's just, yeah. so I would say, look, if, if, you, if you can, if your conscience allows you to choose a lesser of two evils, you should. The Nazi, you know, you've heard the illustration, Nazis are pounding on the door. door. Do you have any Jews in your basement? Mm -hmm. You do. Do you lie or do you have, give them up to head off to the concentration camps? You know, I would say, if, I'd say you should make a decision if you can. Um, but I recognize that the, the, the stakes at any given moment, I, I can't bind your conscience to say you must choose the lesser of two evils. And if you feel like the only thing I can do is go third party, I'm, I'm going to leave your conscience free to go third party or write in or, or whatever. Yeah. And maybe to make Would you guys want to yeah. push back on that? I, I was just going to say one kind of additional thing with that. Um, I, I think it's worth recognizing that I don't think you can always go the lesser of two evils. So I just want to... So you would go I, greater of two evils? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's great. So I, I just, yeah. I do, and, and this is probably getting to your third, you know, if a person can't. And I do think it's one of those things that Christians do have to wrestle with periodically in moments of voting. Is there, like, to, to sift through, well, what would allow me, here's, I, I'm making a judgment, this evil is worse than this evil, but I do have a line that says, there is evil so bad that I can't do either. So I, I do, I just want to make the point that, hypothetically, a Christian has to say, that line would exist. 
uh, that when I stand before Jesus, I couldn't do either. And uh, so I want to say that to go along with that question. And I just want to offer these two maybe categories as you're thinking about what could get you to a line that would say, I just, could, even though we're in a two-party system, I couldn't do in either of these. And my two buckets, and y'all feel free to push back on this or have other buckets, I think there is a minimum baseline for character that a person who's going to be leading a nation should have or leading anything should have for that matter. There's some sort of a baseline of character and there is a baseline of policy. So there's like a policy bucket um, and there is a character bucket. And I just think that, that to be over the line, you would have to say, uh, or in terms of like, for me, lesser two evil argument works, but I can vote for this lesser of the two. They would need to be over those two buckets of uh, sort of information. Uh, not disqualified. Not disqualified character-wise and the policies work well enough. So, yeah. Okay. I'd want to just give that sort of clarification around that question. So It involves you, both character and policy. Yeah. Would you want to say anything you else? Know, no, I would largely agree. I mean, we, we were talking about this earlier, but I think, uh, you know, it is an interesting thing for me when you think about particularly uh, a presidential election like we're heading into. Um, would, I, would I even baseline let this individual watch my kids? Would I let them babysit my kids? And so for me, that just feels like a baseline. It's just a, okay, it's so a, a character test of sorts. Biden watch your kids? <laughs> oh gosh, I don't know. I'm calling my in-laws, so bring them over. So need you guys to pitch it. So. So I just want to at least create the categories that those two categories exist. And let me just go uh, maybe a step or, uh, to deeper into that, uh, because I do think this is a tension. Well, look at the time. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, we do have six minutes, so we're not going super deep into it. Uh, but I'll give you Jonathan's email. You can just email him all day. Yeah. And I'll um, so, uh, and, and I think this probably gets right to the heart on at least the policy side. Well, it, it's combining probably both in, in some ways. Uh, in uh, this particular election, this is somebody writing in this question, I feel like I'm torn between defending the lives of unborn children in our nation and supporting people of color. Help. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a very real tension. Do you I, want to I, comment on that? Um, <laughs> I guess that's why I'm here. <laughs> you get to go home afterwards. Yeah, 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 we have to live here. Yeah. <laughs> I think that as Christians, we need to do two things at once. One, affirm there's multiple rocks on the scale and that some rocks are heavier than others. I don't think we have the luxury to say, there's lots of rocks. Well, you can go either way. And I don't think we have the luxury to say, uh, or to deny the fact that some rocks are heavier than others. I think we have to say both. And so when I'm having a conversation with a a, a fellow Christian, um, I I think I'm trying to speak pastorally and carefully and and recognize, as I I tried to do this morning, even in my sermon introduction, Look, there, there's, there's true and genuine fears on both the right and the left, and as, as yeah. illustrated by your question. And uh, now I personally, uh, you know, I, as I make the weight, weight, weight of the scales, I, I think some rocks are heavier than others at the same time. That doesn't mean I want to discount the different rocks on the scale. And so if I'm, I'm talking to a, a, a brother or sister who's feeling something different, I, I want to affirm and say, yes, I, I, I get it. Um, I want to take into account, so speaking, for instance, to this Hispanic elder who feels an existential threat 
uh, against his own person. That's not something I've experienced. I've not lived inside of that. So what do, what do I do when I'm talking? Should I be dismissive? Ah. No, I, sh- I should love him. If he's a member of the body of Christ, he's a part of my body. And I need to love him and, and, and take into account and hear and listen to what he's saying. And if I don't, I think I'm in sin to not listen to my brother. Now, that doesn't mean I may agree with my brother at the end of the day and make the same judgment, but I need to do the work of listening to him. And he's saying, hey, this rock weighs this much. I'm going to be like, okay, I need to feel the weight of that rock with you. So there are multiple rocks in the bucket. At the same time, I think some rocks are heavier than others. So personally, I cannot vote for a pro-choice candidate. I I feel like I would be sinning by voting for a pro-choice candidate. Now, I'm not saying you should therefore vote positively in this direction. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is I personally cannot vote. Back to your disqualifying questions, I understand the desire to kill unborn children and to fund it by government and to shout it, that's, that's wicked. And uh, I personally feel like I would be sinning by doing that, and I cannot do that. And I don't even think it's good enough to say I care about other issues. So, so if candidate, you got Jack and Jill, and, and Jack is saying, hey, I, I'm pursuing A, B, C, D, and E, and Jill is saying L, M, N, O, P, and I'm thinking, eh, but I, I really like, you know, A, B, C, and D, but E, E is awful, but I really like these. Well, I'm just not going to worry about that, and I'm going to support A, B, C, and D. Well, that doesn't morally absolve you of E. Your, your ballot is dumb. It doesn't discern your motives. When you vote for Jack versus Jill, you are necessarily taking moral responsibility for A, B, C, D, and E. You can't absolve yourself of the things you don't like for the things you do like. You are necessarily handing Jack the sword of state to pursue A, B, C, D, and E. You are necessarily complicit in all of those things. And I understand that insofar as Jack saying, yes, I think killing babies is a good thing. I, I just, in a sense, if Jack said, I am, I'm pro-slavery, I'm pro-infanticide, it's like, I'm sorry, you might be great on those things. I just, I think I would probably be sinning by voting for you. Right. But again, that's not saying, I'm saying you got to vote for Jill. I'm just saying I can't do that. At the same time, I'm going to go back to my minority friend and try to recognize and affirm and feel the weightiness of that rock to the best of my ability. But finally, in the end, I'm going to stand before God and give an account for my decisions. And so that's what I'm going to, that's what I have to do. So it ain't easy, friends. It's just not. I so appreciate you acknowledging that because I think we all feel the weight and just starting from that premise that this is not an easy reality that we as Christ followers find ourselves in. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was talking to a group. Yeah, I was talking to a, a group of interns and uh, an, an Arabic woman who's training to be a missionary said, you know, the, the thought of voting for a person who I understand to be utterly against what I am makes me want to throw up. So I'm not going to bind her conscience and tell her she has to do that. I'm not going to say you have to go this way. But, but I, I do think there's a time and a place for Christians to say, I don't think you can go that way. 
and uh, voting is strategic, right? So people have different strategic arguments for trying to get where they want to go, and, and, and that makes the whole enterprise of ethical evaluation very difficult. Uh, yeah, I could keep going, but yeah. I think I'll yeah. stop there. Well, and unfortunately, it is 8.31. That 30, minutes let's, went, let's, let's, that, that 30 minutes went really fast. Let's end on something positive yeah. rather than that. Yeah. Can yeah. think of a question I can ask you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, what uh, hope? You, you know, you just told us the world's going to end on November 3rd. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you mean that. <laughs> I don't mean Our that. Our cities might burn, but it yeah. won't end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What hope do you have to offer the saints heading into this terribly contentious season? Yeah. Um, well, maybe mm-hmm. uh, just a couple of quick things to, to end tonight with. Um, I think that over the next three months, um, one of the unique things a follower of Jesus can give is what Paul commends in Ephesians 4. Uh, when he says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he uses words like this, gentleness, humility, patience, bearing with one another in love. Those would be, um, those are in such short supply that when they're seen, they're almost shocking in our culture. And I I would just want to commend us as a church family and commend you as a follower of Jesus Whatever else you do over the next three months, um, make sure those sort of gospel character qualities are seen and felt and people, when they're interacting with you, they just can't help but leave that interaction thinking, I bumped into those sort of things. Gentleness, patience, um, that humility, bearing with one another in love. And then I, I just maybe as a last thing that, that I'll end with. Uh, and you actually said it this morning, so I'm really just going to repeat you, as I've been repeating Ryan, too. So, um, our hope as a church and a follower of Jesus doesn't ride on what happens November the 3rd. Yay! Yes. There you go. Yes. It just, at the end of the day, it doesn't ride on that. And so, man, I just hope there is a sense in which we can all lay our head down at night, Knowing that we have a king who reigns over every election. Psalm 3. There you my go. enemies yeah. surround me, I lay down and <laughs> sleep. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. So may we as a church family be the sort of people who can believe that Jesus is working out his purposes regardless of the short-term things that we're living through. And chances are they're going to be hard short-term things for all of us. In your life in particular, in our life as a country Um, And may we be a people who can lay our head down at night believing that God, a sovereign God, is providentially ruling everything to his purposes. Amen? Amen. Okay. So let's uh, end on that. I'm going to pray for us and then uh, give you a couple of closing announcements, and then uh, we'll finish up. Jonathan, thanks for coming. Yes. Thank you. So, Father, we do want to faithfully reflect you. God, we want to be the sort of people who do what the psalmist encourages us just over and over throughout the psalms to take our refuge in you. And so, God, would you allow this season of our life to be a season where we get to learn that in deeper ways? Um, God, what it means to believe that you are the king, even 
if and when things don't go a particular way that we would see them go in our life, in our country's life, God, may we believe that. May, may we be a, a, a person who is practically, where the rubber meets the road in our life, where it really counts in our life, be the sort of people who are taking refuge in you. And Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom as followers of you. God, would you help us see the things that you would want us to see? Uh, God, would you help us find that, that sort of line between where are the straight line issues? Where are the jagged line issues? Um, God, what, what is it that we need to hold on to with every ounce of strength that we have? And where can we gladly give freedom? Yes, Lord. And so, God, we, we just, we're telling you as your followers, as your sons and daughters, we need wisdom for these things. We need wisdom. And God, I pray that you would just grant it to your people in just abundant ways. So God, help us. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. 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 Amen.